This is Football Social Daily, the Premier League podcast. This time last year, six Premier League managers had already been shown the door. But no such drama in the dugouts this season until now. We have our first coaching casualty of the season as the rock-bottom blades are set to sack Paul Heckingbottom. Fair enough with just five points from 14 Premier League games? Or is it a case of what did everyone expect from the boys from Bramall Lane? Plus two big games over the weekend involving both Manchester sides. United bossed about by Newcastle and City sharing the spoils with Spurs. We'll talk about those. And of course, as it's a Monday, that means it's also time for a moan. This is the award-winning Premier League podcast, Football Social Daily. Thanks for joining us. My name's Sean Dyche and I'm joined today by Joel Tudor and Marley Anderson. Morning, lads. I hope you feel a bit better than I do this morning. Well done on your win at the weekend, mate. Really good <laughs> Yeah, cheers. <laughs> Speaking of wins at the weekend, Joel, uh, you know, let's, let's get straight into it, if you like. Doing a full hour on 1-0 one uh, to the Newcastle. Is it that time already? Uh, thanks for <laughs> tuning into FSD. We'll see you again tomorrow. <laughs> well, hold your horses because we're going to talk about that in a minute. Because first of all, we need to address the fact that there has been the first sacking in the Premier League this season. It comes at rock bottom club Sheffield United. And Paul Heckingbottom, Marley, has been given his marching orders. They lost 5-0 to fellow relegation candidates Burnley at the weekend. They obviously had a man sent off. And we know that these are the sorts of games that if you're in a relegation fight, you need to be winning against the teams around you. But to go and lose it 5-0, is it much of a shock that he's lost his job this morning? It can't be. It can't be uh, any, anything even close to a shock. Um, you know, they've they've just not got going at all this season. There's, there's not been a game, even the one they won, where they looked sort of capable of, of doing anything and, and showing any fight. And that's... That's probably the key thing for me. There's no fight in that team. You know, um, the Newcastle game, they gave up at 3-0 and Newcastle just carried on and it ended up 8. So then the Burnley game, you know, the one game you absolutely should be fully up for. And, you know, you've got the psycho up front who goes too far and starts elbowing people up front and does it twice in however many minutes and gets sent off. And, you know, from then on, it's, it's almost like just I think was it two nil when McBurney got sent off and it was just almost take the two nil but be shut the door at the back before you even try and nick something from a set piece or whatever and they ended up just again rolling over it's a proper soft belly to that team and you know they ended up losing five nil in a in what is probably a six pointer not surprised to see him get sacked you know the, the socials I was checking the the social media this morning and there's always an eerie silence on social media. <laughs> There should never be 20 hours uh, when a club hasn't posted uh, anything. I think there's been 20 hours at the minute mm. where um, where nobody's posted anything on the Sheffield United account. I think the last two tweets are, are full-time. <laughs> and uh, and who they got in the FA Cup, I think, they, I think it says they got Gillingham or something in the FA Cup, but um, that was it. You know, it's obviously, um, you know, the silence before the, the sacking type of thing. So not surprised at all, to be honest. You can't really... You can't expect too much from from any Sheffield United manager, but you can expect you you can be justified in expecting more than what they've given so far this season. Yeah, I think that's the key, isn't it, Joel? We probably all expected Sheffield United to be down there, but to only have five points and be rock bottom of the table, even behind an Everton team that have had ten points docked in the last couple of weeks. Maybe that is an indictment of just how bad things are at Sheffield United. And actually, just to pick up on a quote that Paul Heckingbottom said, I'm going to paraphrase here in his post-match press conference, there was some chanting around the ground 
about the performance levels of the players. And Paul Heckingbottom actually said post-match that he felt like joining in with the crowd at the chance kind of teeing off on his own players. So he's clearly frustrated as well. And I don't like using the term put out of his misery, but it certainly feels that way at this point. I wonder what the chant was. Was something like, we lose every week. <laughs> and he just thought he'd join in with them all. Uh, it's not a great uh, indiction of how good they're doing at the moment, but we all talked about it um, a few weeks ago when we were analysing Sheffield United in that grading episode. And when we looked through their transfers, the fact that they lost their main strike who basically got them to the league and the fact that they lost... <clears throat> And the fact that they lost Sander Berg as well to a direct relegation rival. They almost went into the Premier League season so underprepared compared to everybody else that it almost was as if the writing was on the wall regardless of what happened this season. And the fact that, you know, you're seeing now Everton have just leapfrogged them after taking a 10-point hit. I'm sure the owners have looked at that and thought, how on earth can we let this continue? A team has just got a 10-point deduction and they're now ahead of us. It's time for a bit of change. And one win in 14 games, it is time. You have to you have to say that sometimes when you come up with a manager who hasn't had Premier League experience in the past, you're giving him a free crack at the whip. But when he's doing these kind of results, obviously he took that 8-0 loss to uh, Newcastle not long ago as well. These early signs that the team is very, very fragile. So that's why I feel like the writing was on the wall for them. I guess the argument now is who comes in next. And actually, Chris Wilder, Marley, the former Sheffield United manager, is one of the front runners to come in and replace Paul Hackingbottom at Bramall Lane. What do you make of that as a potential move? Chris Wilder, obviously, last two jobs at Middlesbrough and Watford haven't quite worked out for him in the championship. But is there a sense that because they're a Premier League team now, even though they're bottom of the pile, that they might be able to attract someone a little bit of a little bit higher calibre or is that about the best that the Blades can ask for at the moment? I think that's the best they can ask for. Mid-season seconds are obviously never part of anyone's plan. Um, so to have the advantage of this guy's going to come in and he already knows the squad. You know, Sheffield United's squad hasn't changed too much since they finished, was it ninth in, um, in 2018, 2019, wherever it was. Um, so... There's a lot of players still there, you know, the club, he knows the club, he's a Sheffield guy, he's basically, you know, the, a local hero coming back to, your, back to your team. He's always going to be interested in the job, he's always going to want the job, he's always going to be available for it. Um, even if he's got another job, he would leave it for that one. It's his dream, it's his dream job, you know what I mean? And with him being out of work and there, I think it just makes sense. Even the system's the same since he left, you know, the whole back three type thing with wing backs and, and what have you. Um... So I don't think it's a bad appointment at all. I don't think Sheffield United can, you know, they can't do what like Wolves do and go and get Hulan Lopetegui or something like that. They can't. They don't fish in that pond, and they can't attract a manager who's gonna a big big name manager or bigger name manager to come in and fight relegation when you got five points and you you know there's already a gap forming at the bottom of the league. I feel like Sheffield United do shop well within their budget. They're not one of these teams that comes up, spends a load of money and hopes it sticks. You know, remember QPR when they came up and chucked 100 million rounds, signed Eunice Kabul and a 90-year-old Rio Ferdinand and people like that and wondered why they went down. It's like, it's not like that. It's Sheffield United come up and I think they've been kind of hard done by in the summer when the, the um, when NDI wanted to go to um, Marseille. You know, a, a French kid at 21 wants to go to Marseille, but... You can't blame him. 
that's a killer. That's pretty much all of their goals leaving the club. Yeah, and I think I actually think they replaced him well with Cameron Archer, but they don't create Archer enough chances because I think he's a quality goal scorer, but you don't create him enough chances. Um, and yeah, so if if Wilder comes back in, you know, he just needs a bit of steel. Ironically, the the team from the Steel City has no steel. <laughs> Well, I mentioned at the start of the show, Joel, that this time last season, six Premier League managers had already been sacked. Paul Heckingbottom becomes the first in 2023-24 to lose his job. Why do you think that is? And obviously there was a World Cup and stuff like that, but it does seem like teams have been a little bit more conservative and holding back on firing managers this season for whatever reason. I feel like it's because we've had about 15 international breaks since the start of the season. So <laughs> but that... normally that's when managers do get sacked, isn't it, in the international break? Yeah, but it just seems like it's been circuit breaker after circuit breaker. I know we all talked about the World Cup last year and how that was the very long circuit breaker that clubs may need if they wanted to sack someone prior to it. But this time it's been, you know, three games, international break. Then the club have probably thought, okay, let's give him a chance. And then he wins a game after the international break. Then it kind of builds their confidence again. And then there's another international break. It's always just been, it's just been stop, start, stop, start. And that's probably what's helped a few of them. But I mean, when you look at the actual table itself, you probably suggest that the only managers who've really been at risk are probably just the ones that are actually in the positions they are, bar Everton. I mean, you look at Baum, if they've had a bit of a resurgence, we were quite critical of Iriola a few weeks ago and he's had a couple of wins which has got them out of that kind of murky area. But the only teams that I'm looking at now are pretty much Burnley and Sheffield. Every other club's owner will be looking at the situation and thinking, you know what, we're in a comfortable position right now. We could go higher than we can. We've got a good amount of breadth between us and the relegation zone. And I feel like last season, there was just a lot of internal conflict with clubs. Remember Thomas Tuchel, I can't believe that was even last year, where he was gone after, what was it, uh, pretty much the start of September, Scott Parker after three games. There was just a lot of individual differences compared to this season, which I think has played a massive impact. But hopefully there isn't too many sackings coming up in the near future, but I don't see it happening unless there's some kind of Again, in a conflict. Last season just felt like it was just an absolute royal rumble, wasn't it, with managers? All right, well, Paul Heckingbottom has left Sheffield United. He's been sacked by the club and it looks like Chris Wilder, a familiar face, will be in at Bramall Lane to pick up the pieces as the Blades are bottom of the Premier League table. We'll talk about some of the big Premier League results later in the podcast, including Newcastle United beating Manchester United and Man City and Spurs. But next on FSD, we'll do our usual Monday moan. See you after this. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily. Now, normally on a Monday morning, we don't have managerial sackings to discuss first up. It's normally Get In The Sea, which is our feature where on a Monday we have a moan and a whinge about something over the course of the Premier League weekend that's wound each of us up. So we've shifted this section to part two today because of that Paul Hecking bottom news. So I hope you haven't been stewing too much, boys, but now's your chance to get whatever it is that's been winding you up out there in the open. We'll come to you first, Joel. What are you throwing in the sea this week, my friend? 
I feel like with Monday Moan, we need to have a bit of a caveat now where we just don't mention VAR or referees because it just feels like every week we could all three of us pick three individual decisions that all get named during this segment. So I'm going to go with something a little bit more left field. Actually, we should say right field, a bit more east, going to Richard Keys, the giant misogynist <laughs> that he is. In uh, where is Where's he? this come from? <laughs> You'll see now. I think he's based in Qatar. I don't know where the hell he is, but... Anyway, if anyone's not seen, he did a silly, silly segment where he throws his two pence in. And every time he seems to throw his two pence in, he gets sacked. This should have been another sackable offence with what he said about his very knowledgeable input about what Man United should do next in terms of the managerial situation. And his suggestion is that we go and get an ex-Liverpool footballer called Xabi Alonso we give him a five-year contract and we make him the <laughs> highest paid manager in the world and give him Saudi wages and give him a five-year assurance that he will not get sacked during that period of time. Obviously, Richard Keyes, very renowned for his astute football knowledge. Uh, if anyone saw him on Sky Sports, you'll probably see how that ended up. But just looking at the crux of it, you're giving a guy who's not won anything, a former Liverpool midfielder, the keys to a club that is in absolute mayhem at the moment and thinking everything's going to be rosy. What On what planet is Richard Keyes coming from? I don't know if he just does this for sound bites or he likes the sound of his own voice. But again, Richard Keyes... He definitely is, likes the sound oh, of his own voice. 100%. There's a lot that can be said about Richard Keyes. But yeah, just looking at that, it just wound me up because it's just... Why on earth? And everyone in the studio, when he actually said that opinion, were just looking at him as if to say, where where have you plucked that from your arse? Where, what area of your ass have you plucked that opinion from? So, yeah, for me, he can get into the... What sea is it around Qatar? The, the Red Persian Gulf. Arabian Gulf. Dead Arabian sea, sea. The Dead Sea, right. Well, he can <laughs> I don't get know. in the Dead Sea. Get- yeah. <laughs> Dip in uh, each is one. It, is it the Dead Sea? Or the Ara- Black Sea? Yeah, there's, there's a lot... Yeah. They're all merging together around there, aren't they? Getting them all. Getting <laughs> yeah, them all. Dip them up in each one and pass the <laughs> sail on. So, yeah, that's for me, Richard Keys, getting the bloody sea and throw away the keys while you're at it. Well, actually, it's funny that that's your getting the sea, Joel, because mine also relates to punditry. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to lie down on the sofa and I'm just going to watch Man City versus Spurs. And I missed all of the build-up. I thought, I'm just going to turn it on for kickoff, watch the game without any punditry, any build-up, that sort of thing, and make my own assessment on the game. And yes, Spurs conceded lots of chances to Manchester City. Haaland missed the sitter. And then there was that decision at the end. I'm sure we'll come on to it later on, on today's show, where the referee played advantage and changed his mind and blew his whistle. But after the game, the pundits in the studio, who on Sky Sports were Roy Keane, Micah Richards and Jamie Carragher, to me, felt like they were all getting stuck into Spurs. And this is a Spurs team, right? Who have got a lot of injuries, players missing. I've lost three Premier League games in a row. They've then gone to Manchester City, got a point after being behind twice. And yet in the studio after the game, everyone was talking about how Spurs got away with it and how lucky they were and and why the performance wasn't right and why Ange Postacoglu needs to maybe change his approach. Why does he need to change his approach? He got a point away at the Etihad. I don't understand. The, The game plan worked. They scored three goals against Manchester City. And actually, I think what the communication from the pundit should have been was that Manchester City keep conceding goals. They've drawn three in a row and they're in a bit of a rut at the moment. Now, going three games undefeated with three draws is not a rut for most clubs, but for Manchester City it is. And as I say, we'll go into this on more detail a little bit later on the pod. But I just thought it was a bit weird, Marley, that 
they were all sort of getting stuck into Spurs and they were kind of pulling apart their performance. I mean, Micah Richards got stuck into Vicario, who I think has been absolutely brilliant for Spurs this season. And he was like, well, when you compare him with Edison, so Edison's been in the league for five, six years. Vicario, it's his first season. And actually, yeah, he's going to be a bit shaky at times because that's the way Ange Postacoglu likes to play. So it just frustrated me a little bit. I was like, why are these pundits tearing strips off of Tottenham instead of looking at the real problem, which is Manchester City once again have failed to win a Premier League game? That can sometimes come with who you have in the studio. Like Michael Richards isn't going to sit there and criticise Man City. He probably should. That's what you probably should get from a pundit, um, because he's um, you know still works with the club and stuff. You can't be completely neutral on the on the game, I suppose. Um, but I, I have a similar. It's not my getting to see this week, but I do have a similar look at at what you've said there. I think there's far too much. Um, scrutiny on on how Ange Postacoglu likes to play like Spurs were top of the league after 10 games I know I know they've they've fumbled a little bit which is fine but also you know they're still doing all right and people are like people seem to be obsessed with this thing of like oh can this can this philosophy be used every week like oh who who uses a philosophy every week do, do, do top managers not have to change because you get worked out it's like no, like top clubs play the same style every week. They they play aggressive, and it's up to you to match them. And like, it it winds me up a bit that oh, what might happen in the future? Well, nothing's happening right now. They were top of the league after ten games. They got a point at the Etihad. They're playing two fullbacks at centre back and still scoring three at the Etihad. Yes, they brought they the look, two best players. You have to exactly. Madison's out. Romero's out. Van der Ven's out. You know, there's there's so many injuries there as well. Um. And yeah, it's kind of winding me up a bit about this whole, like, oh, can you play this way every week? Like, Pep Guardiola in the prime tiki-taka Barcelona didn't think, right, lads, we've played tiki-taka three weeks in a row. We're going to hoof it in the channels and try and launch long throws into the box when we get them because Dani Alves has been working on his long throws for two months now. They play the same way. Top managers do that. Even Guardiola at City, it doesn't matter what formation they play. They play the same style, the same philosophy, keep it on the floor, play out from the back. And, you know, we'll hammer whoever's in front of you. Why can't Ange do that? He's proved he can so far. And also, to bring this into context, Spurs had lost three games in a row before that. They've gone away to the champions who won a treble last season and they've got a point. And yes, they rode their luck at times. Yes, City hit the post through Doku. Yes, Haaland missed a couple of sitters. Yes, there was a strange refereeing decision at the end, which we'll talk about. But at the end of the day, I don't think the players will be sitting in the dressing room after scoring a late goal through Kulisevsky and going, oh, bloody hell, lads, we got away with one there. They'll be absolutely buzzing. And nobody in their right mind would be sat there thinking, oh, you know, maybe we should look at our performance today. They've got a point when they were supposed to lose and they have just broken a streak of losing three games in a row. So I, I didn't understand the narrative after the game. I thought it was really harsh, actually, the way that Spurs were treated. Anyway, that's my piece. It's your turn, Marley, to get on your soapbox now. So what are you going for to throw in the sea? Other than than VAR and and the decisions, well, not well. Other than the the refereeing performance at the end of um, of the fella in the Man City game, was it Simon Hooper? Is that who it was called? Um, other than that, which I thought we were going to talk about anyway, so I picked something else. It's not it's not that big, but it is kind of a little bit annoying. I sat down to watch the two o'clock kickoff yesterday, um, and I looked through Sky Sports. And all I had, had to offer, I thought, Chelsea-Brighton, great game. Liverpool-Fulham, yeah, should be an easy Liverpool win, but obviously it turned out to be to be decent. And Bournemouth-Villa, quite a good game at the time as well. Put put it on, West Ham-Palace. 
Right, I'm I'm going up the tip. I'll do something else. Just I don't I don't understand how Sky <laughs> can look at the two most mid-table, probably I want to say unambitious. It's probably a bit harsh on West Ham, but in terms of who's almost definitely going to finish twelfth and thirteenth this season, it's those two teams, and it's just you know we have to sit and watch them for ninety minutes, and you know on the other channels you've got on the other channel abroad. All these channels, you've got Liverpool 4, Fulham 3 with three goals in the last 12 minutes. And you've got Chelsea against Brighton, which had a red card, five goals, and I think three goals in the first half an hour or something like that. And then Bournemouth nearly nearly upsetting the odds at Villa. And all, we've got bloody West Ham going 1-0 up and blowing it against uh, against Crystal Palace. <laughs> it's just... just so to confirm, are you throwing yourself in the sea for choosing to actually watch that game for 90 minutes? <laughs> I didn't. I went. I went out. He threw himself in the tip it. instead. Yeah, I threw him out into the channel. <laughs> I went. I went and sorted my, sorted my garage out, and then went up the tip. That's how. That's how little I wanted to watch Crystal Palace against West Ham. So I went out and uh, yeah, came back and obviously got all these goals flying in everywhere and none at uh, well to uh, the London Stadium. They weren't even good goals. I always remember an exact situation like that a few years ago where. I think I might have been hung over or something. I was at uni and I was like, right, we'll get a pizza in, we'll sit and we'll watch Super Sunday. Expecting it to be a good game of some description. It was Stoke against Sunderland. <laughs> How can you describe that as Super Sunday? <laughs> that's just that's just Sunday. It's not Monday, not that's Super Monday, that, not Sunday. <laughs> God. I do wonder though, and I should probably know this as I do a bit of broadcasting, but I guess each team has the right to be on Sky a certain amount of times yeah. a season, that must be something yeah. to do with it. Yeah, it's, I think it is one of them. But they've probably just said, we'll kill two birds with one stone here and we'll put Palace and West Ham on on the same day when they play each other and then they can, you know, we can save the good games for later in the season. But yeah, terrible decision from whoever picked that. I'll tell you what, if you add the age of David Moyes and Roy Hodgson together, you've got to be looking at 130, 140, something like that, surely. That is one prehistoric dinosaur, that is, isn't it? That's as, that's as old as professional football. I was going to say that that will outlast pretty much every club in the, in the Premier League. Professional football started in the 1890s yeah. or something in England. It's actually, the two of them combined are older than the game itself. That's hilarious. Anyway, that's it for Getting the Sea. If you've got any moans or gripes that you want us to discuss on the show that maybe we haven't done today, then getting in touch with us via social media is a great way to let us know what you want us to talk about. You can do that by clicking any of the links in the description to the podcast. You can also click the link to the Telegram group as well, which is also in the description. But next, we're going to talk about the two Manchester clubs and their respective affairs over the weekend. Manchester United in Newcastle. Town Centre at 8 o'clock on a Saturday night. What could possibly go wrong? As for Manchester City, what did go wrong? Well, according to them, the referee, but do they need to look inward a little bit more after their draw with Tottenham? We'll talk about both games next on Football Social Daily. Welcome back. It's the final part of today's podcast, Football Social Daily. If you hit subscribe or follow on whichever podcast platform you use to listen to this show, that way when a new episode is released, you will not miss one. My name's Niall, feeling a little bit ropey today, so thanks for bearing with us. Joel and Marley are alongside me, and it was the FSD Derby on Saturday night, lads. Eight o'clock at St. James's Park, Joel's Manchester United versus Marley's Newcastle United. 
And Marley, as the victor, I will let you say your piece. And what I must say, as the neutral in this situation, a very well-deserved win as well. Newcastle were the better side and got what they deserved out of the game. Yep, 100, 100%. I don't think... There was no there was no spell in the game where Man United looked like scoring, I don't think. It was easy. And I don't mean I don't mean to say that to rub it in on, on Joel or anything like that. It was just an easy game. It was like we were playing fourth or fifth bottom in the league. Like it was just wave after wave of possession and you know, going close and having chances, having shots and stuff like that. And it was just once it got to half time and it was nil nil, I did get a bit twitchy because I thought if that's exactly what I was going to ask you. I was going to say, were you getting worried because you dominated Manchester United in the first half and went on Twitter actually at half time and I saw loads of tweets saying it's March 1996 all over again. And if you're not familiar with that game, Newcastle and Man United were both going for the title that season, and Newcastle battered them at St James's, absolutely battered them, and Eric Cantona came up with a goal and United win the game one nil. And it was one-way traffic the whole game. And I think there are a few Geordies that felt that that was following a similar trend. So that is interesting to hear you say that you were a bit concerned at halftime with the score goalless after all of the dominance that you had. Well, luckily Man United don't currently have a player that's even within, you know, 10 miles of of Eric Cantona in terms of how good he was. Um, There's no one like that at Man United who can do something out of nothing. You know, you're looking at the game. And you're thinking Rashford's number one got no confidence. He's playing playing terribly. He's playing on the right as well, which is you know he seems to just look out of out of place there. You look at Martial up front, just just stood there shivering in the cold because he just does not want to be there. And it's just you know I, I did get a bit a bit twitchy because I was thinking oh god you know I've been in this position before where it's just all all Newcastle and then hopefully the uh, the goal comes, but as soon as um, as soon as the second half kicked off, it was just as it was before. Man United got no no boost just after half time from what the manager said or anything like that. And you know, to sum it up, Wan Bissaka goes to sleep at, at the far post. Gordon runs off him, and you know, I think um, that's where Newcastle are the most dangerous at their most dangerous down that right hand side. The little combinations we come up with down that right hand side are, are superb. And obviously, once Trippier gets it in a crossing position, it's an easy cross. For someone as good as him and um, a nice easy tap in to, to seal it really. Come on then Joel, over to you. From a Manchester United perspective, just how poor was that? Because Marley mentions Martial and Rashford and those two players are getting a lot of criticism today because of the way they operated during that game. I think the scary part of this game or going into this game was the fact that I had no expectation. That I literally could have predicted that performance. I could have predicted that scoreline, maybe even more, to be honest. I think the scoreline probably flattered United, Manchester United more than Newcastle in all aspects. But going into these games, we've not beat a top eight side since 2021, which just shows why I'm right in thinking I had no expectation. Because it seems like when we go away to these tough grounds where the the atmosphere is high, the expectations high. They just completely crumble. You even saw it at Galatasaray. When there's something real at stake and it's an intense and pressured atmosphere, they crumble. I don't know if it's a mentality issue. I don't know if it's the players have just got no courage or they're all playing on zero confidence. But you just mentioned Rashford there. What a pathetic performance that was. He's just got one of the biggest contracts in Man United history. He's one of the highest paid players at the club. He's off the back of a 30-goal 30 30 season 
and he wants to put in performances like he doesn't want to be on the pitch. And I don't want to single him out because Martial equally as suspect in terms of attitude. The body language for me is the bare necessity for a football player. You look to the Newcastle players, if they lose the ball, they're straight away trying to attempt to do it. I don't know if that comes from the manager. I don't know if it comes from just the general culture at the club. But it's so inexcusable for a professional football player to be strolling around the pitch one thing I really hate about Rashford at the moment, and it's been it comes in spells, I realise now he's very much a confidence player. He plays with such an air of entitlement. You know, in the way in which Ronaldo used to play, but he was almost justified because he was an absolute world beater. Where, for example, Wayne Rooney would say, Ronaldo sits at the top of the pitch, he doesn't press, he doesn't chase, but we know he's going to win the game for us, so it's absolutely fine. Rashford plays with that kind of arrogance but he doesn't have the world beater status next to him. So then he has to work hard for the team. It's the bare minimum. As much as I understand your perspective on Rashford, I think that the telling thing is exactly what you said. The record against the top teams, the record away from home against any side in the top nine of the Premier League is one point from 33 available away from home. It's dismal, those figures. You say that those statistics are from 2021. Well, Eric Ten Hag's been the manager for long enough now. So how much blame needs to be placed on Ten Hag? Because you can talk about Rashford walking around and looking miserable. Can't sack Marcus Rashford. And I'm not saying Eric Ten Hag should be sacked. But surely with the statistics that you've mentioned and the performances that we've seen. So how much responsibility does he need to shoulder for some of the performances that these fans have been traveling to see? Yeah, of course. I don't want to just keep harping on about the ownership, which of course is a huge asterisk on all of our, not performances, but the current situation. But Ten Hag's man management this season and in-game management has been so appalling. Because if you remember last season, we were winning games based on his in-game management, where he'd bring on a player who'd go and win us the game, or he'd take someone off and change the midfield and it would shore us up. We were excellent in that department. This season, he's seemingly got everything wrong. From substitutions that he brings on too late or too early, like we saw in the Galatasaray game, where he brought on Kobe Mainu for Amrabat in the 57th minute. For what? The game was still there to just continue to control and play, not be erratic with his substitutions. So, of course, it's, you know, just this question alone, I'm actually bored of it. I don't mean in terms of you asking it me, but in terms of the actual question as a whole, I'm bored of it. Because it feels like every two years, we say the same thing. Who's to blame? Is it the owners or is it the manager? Do we change the manager? Yes or no, because we can't start the players. Well, then who? what manager do we go for? Are we? How long are we going to keep saying this for? There needs to be just clear-cut change. I'm not saying sack Ten Hag, because then who, who else do you go for? Do we go for Kizzi's Jabi Alonso? I don't even think he would do much of a better job, because he is in the, the exact same bracket as Ten Hag was before he came. A very established manager in Europe in terms of his league. Not won anything. Ten Hag had won something. So it's the same mould. It's the same principle. That's why I'm just so bored of my own club at the moment and the fact that it's so clear what needs to change. But then on the flip side, I can, I'm can, i starting to see weaknesses in Ten Hag's management. So you look at the Sancho situation. I can imagine Sancho's looking at that game. And you know what? I don't kind of empathise with why he's out because he's not apologised to the manager. It's only going to go one way, isn't it? But the fact that there was rumours that he was annoyed at the fact that some players get preferential treatment over the others. So, for example, if Marcus Rashford drops that performance against Newcastle, he'll start the next game. 
if Onana makes that mistake against Galatasaray, he'll start the next game. So it seems like there's certain players that get a little bit of preferential treatment over the others. And I think that will rub teammates up the wrong way, and rightly so. And we've seen it with the way in which he's dealt with the likes of Maguire, Ronaldo. At the time, it felt like the right choice. But now that we're starting to see a bit more of the perspective of what's going on, I'm starting to think his man management is pretty cutthroat a bit cut dry where some players will warm to it other players will absolutely despise it but you have to also earn their respect as well at the same time and that's why for me we're starting to see little cracks I think in the squad little warning signs because if he can't get his players fired up and the players can't get themselves fired up what what left is there really but as I've always said the main caveat is culture change needs to happen very very quickly I think it was a real contrast on Saturday of a team that knew exactly what they were doing system-wise, coaching-wise, and a team that didn't. And you only need to look at the scoreline to figure which was which, which is disappointing really because we hear lots about Ten Hag being this master tactician and this style of play that he wants to bring. Haven't seen that at all this season, maybe once or twice on Manchester United, but not at all. I mean, we just talk about Ange Postecoglou there, right? And they've lost, you know, they had lost three games in a row going into the Man City game. And we talk about him playing the same way every time. That is a style that he's put into the club really quickly. You know, what, what's he been there? Four months now? Five months? He's been there and he's put his style on the on the squad and he's picking whoever he's picking. And he's almost, he's even picking players in, um, in, in the midst of an injury crisis that can play rather than Eric Dyer. He's playing Emerson at centre-back. It might be a choice that might go wrong in the future, but he's sticking to his style. I think it's perfectly acceptable to to look at Man United and saying, you've had 18 months and you I can't define a way Man United try and play. I don't know when they're gonna where they're gonna hurt a team. You don't know where they're gonna score from. You don't know where they're gonna look a threat from. They lose the possession battle every week. They usually have like 45% possession against pretty much everyone. And it's like what what is your style then? Like where's where's your philosophy? Where's this Ajax philosophy? You've had all this time to put something in place that you can identify with, and I think Man United fans can't do that. United have conceded far too many goals. That's undoubted. You just need to look at the stats. I think most goals conceded in a season up to this point since the sixties, and another team that are conceded in a lot of goals are Manchester City because yet again three conceded by Pep Guardiola's side at the weekend against Spurs, Joel. Now we've spoken a little bit about Tottenham and the fact that that's a positive result for them off the back of three defeats. But I want to talk about Manchester City now because they've slipped to third in the Premier League table. They drew with Liverpool, no shame in that. They drew 4-4 with Chelsea. Conceding four goals to Chelsea is unusual for a team like Manchester City. And then they've conceded three to Spurs. Eight goals in three games they've conceded now in the Premier League. And actually, Jamie Carragher was saying on Sky Sports after the game that it's quite refreshing that Manchester City have slipped a little bit because it makes the Premier League more interesting. And actually, as a neutral, I'm inclined to agree. It is a little bit samey and boring, for want of a better term, when City are just sweeping everyone aside all the time. Yeah, it's like seeing the Terminator finally being able to be beaten for once rather than just wiping everyone off the floor. I mean, it's 10 goals if you count that Leipzig game where they had to come back from 2-0 down to then win the game 3-2. It just seems like every team that actually gives City a go. I think in the Premier League, the three teams I can say off the top of my head that 
actually are quite fearless when it comes to playing City. A Spurs, who I think are Man City's absolute Achilles heel. They cannot seem to deal with them year on year, especially at Tottenham's ground. Liverpool, because I feel like they have a very contrasting style so they can get at them quite easily. And Crystal Palace, maybe before Zaha uh, departed, but every single time Palace have played City, especially away from home, I've been so impressed with them. Let's not forget last season, they, they beat uh, City at the Etihad and they were pretty convincing in how they beat them. But those three, I would say, in terms of just style, they've given them a go. They're not fearful, they don't sit back and they don't, you know, take all the punches from City. They play with such a real, like, venomous counter-attack. And that's what we've seen. And with City at the moment, defensively, I think they've missed John Stones massively. I didn't realise how important he is for their build-up play and their style, but I think losing him has been pretty difficult for them. But as we've known with City in the last years, I'm not actually quite surprised at the same time because we know that when the clock strikes midnight on New Year's Eve... It's almost like when Michael Jackson thriller and he sees the full moon and suddenly his eyes start getting big and he starts growing into this werewolf that's about to kill everyone. It's like the Undertaker sitting up. <laughs> yeah. And his t- <laughs> and the graveyard sounds start to chime and it's go time. I mean, honestly, this is how I see this city city team. I don't think Guardiola will be nervous. I think he actually wants this kind of adversity. Do you remember last year when he had that press conference and he was almost trying to get his players spurred on because City were winning the league by quite a decent amount against Arsenal. I think was it around pre-Christmas time. And he, he used the charges against them as if to say, everyone's out to get us. We need to kind of pick up. I think this City team, especially on the back of winning a treble, you need motivation from somewhere. And I think to try and be that team who's chasing the pack, proving everyone wrong, and especially you'll go on with that refereeing decision at the end. They need that. I feel like they need these decisions going against them to actually give them that kind of, you know, that spurring on to say everyone's out to get us kind of mentality. All right, well, let's talk about it then. We've left it right to the very end of the show, but I'm sure people are itching to hear what we think about that refereeing decision. Simon Hooper, who I think actually refereed the game all right up to that point, dished out a few yellow cards here and there, but a strange decision at the end with the score 3-3 when Erling Haaland is tripped the referee is right there, puts his whistle to his lips, Marley, then indicates play on because Haaland springs back to his feet and then lifts the ball over the top for Grealish, who's beaten his defender. He's the other side of the Spurs man and he's through one-on-one with Vicario. Just as the ball bounces in front of Grealish, the whistle goes and the game stops. Cue pandemonium. Erling Haaland completely loses his head. The players surround the referee a very controversial end to what was an otherwise entertaining game. What did you make of it all? I mean, it's a bad mistake, isn't it? What, what more can I say? I don't know. Um, just just a horrendous decision. Just truly one of the most baffling decisions I ever, I've ever seen because the thing that makes it worse is he makes the right decision, then he makes the wrong decision. Like, it's... It's a it's a proper head scratcher because I can understand if he blew his whistle straight away, um, and and then you know the whistle goes and he stops it and then Harlan like springs up and plays the pass and then Hooper will be like oh damn it but I blew the whistle but you you can see him on the replays I mean Harlan goes down his whistle goes to his mouth he doesn't whistle then he pulls it away from his mouth then he signals. And he says advantage, and then for some reason the whistle goes back to his mouth, and he goes, "No, actually, we're going to stop it." And that is, 
it's it's just a, it's a crazy crazy decision because you you accept that people make mistakes but when they make the right decision and then make a wrong decision it's like scoring an own goal from from being on the line of your goal you're meant to score in and turning round and hoofing it 100 yards up the other end of the pitch and losing scoring in the wrong goal it's bizarre and the camera panned to to Guardiola and the fourth official which I think was um, Taylor and even Taylor's face was just like it's hard to explain just like a face that he knew he'd messed up and he couldn't say anything to Guardiola and he just sort of Acknowledge like Gadiel is obviously giving him, you know, both barrels. And Taylor's just like, yep, yep, I can't, I can't work out why he's give that or whatever. And it's just, it's a terrible, terrible decision. But it's, um, it's something, something they've, they've got to live with, I suppose, at the end of the day. But the whole standard of refereeing is is a joke at the minute. So we all agree it's the wrong decision. He's got caught in two minds. That's the worst thing you can do as a referee, particularly at that late stage and in that situation. Grealish, there's no guarantee that he would have scored. There's no guarantee that the Spurs man wouldn't have kicked him down and got himself sent off. We just don't know what would have happened. Obviously, City fans, in their mind's eye, see Grealish running through and scoring and winning the game 4-3. And they might look back at the end of the season and go, oh, well, if we had got that result against Spurs where the referee shafted us, we might have won the title. Well, you just don't know that for sure. What we do know for sure, though, and I think this is is where, like I say, Man City need to look inward. Doku hits the post from really good play. Haaland misses two or three really good chances. They miss their opportunities against Spurs and they paid the price for it. Now, it doesn't happen often for Manchester City. You know, the cynic in me, the pragmatist, would go, well, maybe if they had taken their chances, they wouldn't have had to worry about that decision at the end of the game. Yeah, it's true. But it's crazy to say that considering they scored three goals still. <laughs> I mean, well, how many more goals do you want them to score? <laughs> but it could have been yeah. six in the first half. 100%. That's the point. I mean, that one that Harlan missed. I remember Gary Neville's reaction as if to say, how the hell is this guy? A guy who scored, what, 45, 50 goals last season. It was the easiest chance he'll ever have. And he still misses. But I mean, with that chance at the end, there's no guarantee that Grealish scores against Vicario. And to be honest, playing devil's advocate, I feel like Vicario probably would have saved it. Because when we go back to that game when Chelsea played Spurs and Spurs went down to nine men, the amount of one-on-ones Vicario saved that game in those dying moments were ridiculous. He's an insane one-on-one goalkeeper. But like I say, I don't really feel like this is going to be a pivotal moment in City's season, to be honest. Of course, maybe when it gets to April, May time and there's only three points in it, sure, they may look back and kind of think what could have been. But at the end of the day, I feel like the Premier League evens itself out in terms of mistakes, especially when it comes to the VAR at the moment. And I feel like every team is going to have at least a few points where they'll look back at the end of the season and think we should have had that extra two points, should have had the extra goal, etc. But you know what? You have to give credit to Tottenham. Every single time Tottenham play City, they play without fear, regardless of what players are at their disposal. We know that they've got massive players out at the moment and I think you've just got to give a lot of credit to the fearlessness that Ange shows whenever his side plays against the bigger team. Okay, nice one, lads. Spurs 3, Manchester City 3. Newcastle with the bragging rights over Manchester United. Do you want any final comments of any kind (laughs) (laughs) do you know what actually i do um there was (laughs) no it's actually um do you remember the last time that we we played and you two gave me all kinds of crap for for saying that um ten Hag was 
sort of a bad loser and didn't praise Newcastle. No, he did praise Newcastle. He said they deserved to win this time, didn't he? Yeah, this time he did it. So he can do it. You know, he just said, oh, we were we were outplayed. We were we were no good. And I thought, oh, that's he's changed his tune since last time. He was starting coming up with all these excuses last time. So I thought, oh, them two Muppets can't uh, can't tell me on Monday that I'm uh, <laughs> that I should be expecting a, oh. a, a written uh, thing. Oh my god, he's still bitter about that. I can't believe it. Because <laughs> it was a fair point, and you two were like, "Oh, what you're about? Oh, what you're no, about?" Well, we'll save the red carpet for next year then. And you know what he also did in the tunnel after the game? He got down on all fours and kissed Eddie Howe's feet. That's what he did as well. <laughs> oh and he did. He's oh given god. up. He's bent over and given up. An opposition manager to roll the red carpet out. Imagine the Right, day. we've got to draw a line under it. Otherwise, we'll be bickering for the rest of the week. And we will be back for the rest of the week as well. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Hit subscribe or follow on your favourite podcast platform. And that way you will not miss it. Premier League games right throughout this midweek. So lots to talk about. And make sure you join us as we'll go through all of the big talking points on Football Social Daily. But from Joel Marley and myself, that is all for today. We'll catch you next time. Speak to you then. Football Social Daily is a voice work sport production for the Sports Social Podcast Network.